You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, ChristianHumanist.org. Welcome to Before They Were Live, an ongoing and monthly conversation where we are scavenging our way through the Disney animated canon, playing our part in a healthy ecosystem between art and criticism and fandom, always eagerly adding to our collection uh, any snarf blot or dinglehopper we can find, anything to help us better understand how these films shape our imaginations. Hopefully along the way we enrich the viewing experience and have some fun too. Today we're swimming through the fathoms of 1989's The Little Mermaid. Disney's return to fairy tales after a 30-year hiatus. We haven't seen one of these since 1959's Sleeping Beauty. Joining me to talk about it is a spineless, savage, harpooning fish eater, incapable of any feeling. But, of course, all humans are the same. It's Michael Farmer. How are you doing? Hi, Michael. Josh. It's nice, <laughs> nice to hear your voice again. We had to take a month yeah, off nice there. Hear- we did take a month off. Um, I guess I can address that really quickly um, before we... Uh, introduce our other guest here. Um, I am safe and, and well, and uh, so are everybody. Everybody that I know, I didn't. I did not know anybody who um, actually has the coronavirus. But just because of the um, the kind of the extreme shutdowns of everything that were happening in in China, um, our school is paused for the time being, and we're doing some online school. And uh, so all of us were encouraged to go um i i hesitate to call it an evacuation it wasn't anything that serious but it was just kind of a get get out while you can because we nobody knows the future and but we do know that the school is going to be shut down for a while so um yeah coming to you live from south carolina it's pretty rare that uh before they were live um happens all in the united states so this, well, is, this is kind of a special this is one the on closest that. in proximity you and i have been in 15 years i think since you moved to china yeah, definitely. So, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing you in person. I think we're going to make it happen. Well, I um, hope so. It's just a matter of when. <laughs> yeah, definitely. All right. But we do have somebody else on the line, if you want to introduce her, Michael. Yeah. Uh, so back in our Fox and the Hound episode, we had Wesley Rogers. His wife, Emily Rogers, who is also my student, is uh, is joining us for The Little Mermaid, which is your favorite Disney movie, Emily? Mm. No. Oh. <laughs> then what are you doing here? I love, uh, I've always said asking me to pick my favorite Disney movie would be like asking a parent to pick their favorite child because I love them all equally. So I don't, I never have claimed to have a favorite. Do you really love them all equally? You love uh, Dinosaur as much as you love The Little Mermaid? Uh, no. Maybe of, of the classics. Pa- parents, <laughs> you know, when parents say that, I'm, I'm convinced they're full of it too. Sure. That's, I'm all right with that. And, and a note bene to our listeners. I may slip up and call Emily Becker, which was her maiden name, and mm-hmm. which is what everybody called her in college. So yes, uh, if, if I do that, that's what that means. Yeah. Well, I think Emily referring this as a classic is a, is a really good jumping off point, because usually people who are looking at uh, the Disney canon and the way we do, do break up the uh, different eras of Disney into um, different sections and we're coming at what is known as kind of the dark ages i think of disney and this is the beginning of the disney renaissance and depending on your age and when you grew up uh this these really are um kind of your like 
they're certain generations like it's their it's their golden era of yeah. of disney um this is definitely i think i believe it's funny i'm saying with my parents and i didn't get around to asking them i think this is the first movie that i ever saw in the theater um but, it was certainly yeah, a favorite little... of mine when I was a kid, and I saw it in the theater. Yeah. And then we had the the you know the big white plastic VHS that we watched. Uh, I don't know. Like I said before, we started recording fifteen hundred times probably. I remember watching it three or four times in a single day. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah, we would do that. The same sort of thing, I'm sure. We we watched this one a lot. Yeah. I was I was going to say that my. Uh, my dad said uh, this is his favorite of the new Disney movies, and I had to the laugh at him ones. because this is yeah the new ones. Like uh, this is number twenty eight. We're not even halfway through our um, our series yet. This of, this of movie was canon, released before so. Emily was born. Yeah. <laughs> the the equivalent uh, of this movie to us is like Robin Hood, or the, at least right. the, the Rescuers. There's there's a better one. Sure. Yeah. So the, it it really does the depend new on when you yeah when you were when you were alive and when you were seeing them, like how you, how you view these movies. So I think that's funny. Do you want that's to talk fantastic. about your experience with it, Emily, since you didn't see it when it first came out, obviously? Um, I was going to say, I mean, mine was very similar. We definitely wore out our VHS tape of this one. I'm not too old for VHS tapes. Um, I remember them very fondly. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we kind of had the whole, um, I think it was the, was it the gold edition that were the VHS collection? Um, we, I mean, had all of those and played them all on an endless loop. Um, but we, we always loved this one. My sister and I were always very into music and this one, um, has a lot of kind of show stopping numbers. And so, um, we were always singing, singing the tunes from this one in particular, but, um, yeah, I've always loved it. It was always fun to pretend to be a mermaid as a kid. And, um, Ariel was definitely one that we looked up to. This is, a, this is another one of those movies like Peter Pan, um, where watching it is kind of weird because you, you can't figure out why on earth she'd want to leave the enchanted, uh, undersea world that she lives in to go live on land do you know what i mean like when you when you pretend to be the little mermaid you're pretending to be her as a mermaid right? yeah not not as a not as yes, the mute yeah. princess of denmark or wherever <laughs> that's supposed to be <laughs> definitely yeah that was actually something that really uh struck me on this latest viewing as i was preparing for the show was um the 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 enchantment in this movie is is backwards in a way which i think also gives it its charm like she is completely enchanted by our normal stuff, you know, like the, the famous, you know, song of, you know, I, I just want to be part of their world. Like it's look at this stuff. Isn't it neat? <laughs> you know, like yeah. She just is fascinated by forks and um, corkscrews and all these sorts of things, which um, taken out of context, uh, like when you remove them from their daily use, they are kind of interesting objects. And I, I think that's really like, she's living in, in what, like our version of like a, a fairy world or an enchanted world would be, you know, it's kind of magical and the, the, um, in the, even in the, in the realm of the movie, the sailors are obviously aware of King Triton and this kind of, um, mythical, you know, forces under the water that are, you know, creating good weather or bad weather and these sorts of things. So like, they're definitely on that enchanted side of things from the human perspective, but then, uh, 
from her perspective, we're we're the enchanted ones. You know, we're the ones who make all this wonderful stuff. And so, um, yeah, I, th- I think there's really something um, interesting about that. And it, I think it does help you to, or helps me at least on this latest viewing to kind of, um, you know, reimagine and re-enchant our world. Just just thinking about like, oh wow, yeah, a fork a fork is kind of an interesting object. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, Josh, the seaweed is always greener in somebody else's lake. <laughs> <laughs> and there's also that, yes. <laughs> I, I think I may have told this story before on the podcast because I have a limited number of stories, but but here we go. Um, I, I met this woman once who was from Britain, and she was an Americanist, so she studied American literature. And I said, uh, what made you do that? Because it, it seems like an odd choice to me. And she said, well, when I was a little girl, I read Laura Ingalls Wilder and I fell in love with the enchanted world of America. And I thought, I, I didn't think it, I said it. You know, that's funny because the Britishists I know became Britishists in part because they read Winnie the Pooh or Mary Poppins or whatever and thought of Britain as this enchanted place. But in America, you know, we mostly think of America as being uh mundane at best you know and 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 maybe even hopelessly uh decadent uh, so so i i think that that really says something this 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 notion that when we were watching the movie we would much rather live under the sea whereas she wants to go comb her hair with a fork or whatever <laughs> he does have a pretty rockin kingdom though you know what I mean? Like, like if you're gonna have to come on land, it seems like a pretty place, a uh, pretty good place to go. Yeah, I definitely. always wondered rewatching it. This is a, kind of a rabbit trail, but did, so once she became queen, did they like just stop eating seafood? I, I like, asked were they that too when we were watching it. Right? I was like, how how would she handle that? But also, <laughs> what do the mer people eat? I, th- this is a conversation <laughs> we have every time there's a movie with animal friends. <laughs> Definitely. Because yeah. Ursula's eaten little uh, shrimp type things at one yeah, point. That's true. I mean, she's she's that's evil. True, yeah, right. So so she's not really the best thing to go off of. But I'm just going to suggest yeah. um, humbly that you can't get King Triton's physique eating seaweed. <laughs> <laughs> I also did not remember him being that ripped as oh, a kid. Yeah. Uh, he's like what in his 60s probably he's got adult daughters and he has like an eight pack <laughs> and he's swimming all day yeah that's, that's right like and a, swimming's really good exercise out, yeah all day <laughs> <laughs> well so we we can we can go there we can we can jump off on triton and then kind of talk through some of the characters well um, let's do it yeah so triton i think is is an interesting character because he he obviously loves ariel and uh, has a has a real soft spot for her, and you see it every time, um, you know, even after he gets really mad at her, um, and he's trying to keep the stern face. He always has they they always give you that like sense of, but he's you know, he feels like he has to do this, but he doesn't. His heart's never really in it, mm. in a way. Well, and I. I... I don't know if you remember this, Emily, but I once told you that this was the most immoral Disney movie. I do remember that. Um, just and and it's it's mostly because of the the treatment of the relationship between Triton and Ariel. Um, sure. This is what the film critic um, Stephen Gray Donis calls a junior knows best movie, mm. uh, where where the the adult is unreasonable and maybe even kind of stupid, and 
the 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 movie kind of turns around when the adult realizes that and realizes that his daughter in this case is the wise one. Uh, but when I watched over this again, it, it's not exactly that, right? I mean, it, it, it's, he, he has a point and he continues to have that point all the way to the end. And, and not only that, he's willing to sacrifice himself for her. So it's not quite as, uh, awful as I thought in that regard. But, um, still, if I had a teenage daughter, I wouldn't want her taking this movie as a model. Yeah, probably not. Yeah, I've been thinking about this quite a bit um, because Josh, it, the, it does. the father of four daughters. That's right. <laughs> That's right. And I, I often have them all sing for me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it just the the movie does seem to be. Um, I think on the surface, as you said, Michael, like what what is the moral of this movie? Like she wants um, she wants to be a human. And her father doesn't want her to be a human, but then he turns her into a human at the end. You know, like um, if you just if you just kind of boil it down to plot points like that, it, the the I think the thematic element that comes through does seem to be that Junior knows best. I think is a great phrase for it. Mm-hmm. But um, as you said, there there is some self sacrifice there, and um, I don't know. I think there's some there's some other more interesting ways to to look at this movie. So hopefully, as we go through this conversation, we can dig into them a little bit. But Charlie um, does not present it as wholly unreasonable. No, he's definitely not. And um, yeah, I think the way that we view Triton, um, I'm I'm still I'm still not totally sure how we're supposed to view him. Um, but I think yeah, if you if you just view view him as kind of a a goof or a, or a doofus, then then you definitely ha- would would come to a very different reading of this movie, and I I don't see that. Like I, I think he's really trying to do what's best for Ariel, um, and he's just he's up against everything that he knows about humans as as them being um, savages, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I don't feel like it's really a movie about prejudice in the way some of the other things that we've watched have been. Or will you know? be. You use the term savages, which made me think immediately mm-hmm. of Pocahontas. Yeah, and I and I don't think that's the point that's trying to come across here either. You know, I, I really don't think that's the story that this movie's trying to tell. I think it is some sort of uh, – it is more of a – I don't know, Ariel is I – mean, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a pursue-your-dreams um, type movie, you know? Yeah. Yeah, which I mean, eventually got really tedious in terms of the message of these Disney movies. That that ended up being the 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 explicit message of many, many, many of them. And I, I think it was still a relative novelty in The Little Mermaid. If you look at the last ten or so features we've watched, that hasn't really been what they've been about. So it, it's it's less tedious now than it's going to be, certainly. Mm-hmm. Emily, you're the only one here who was ever a teenage girl. Did you identify with Ariel when you when you had arguments with your father? Um, I did not have very many arguments with my dad. Um, I was trying to think though, kind of through that time in life, and and you know, examine my past and see if there was a, a time or an example or something I could pull out that was that made me feel similar, like, oh, you just don't understand, or I'm not understood. And I think, I mean, I think that experience is universal to, to men and women, um, feel, not feeling understood by their parents or by their, 
the authority around them. Oh, by the um, world, I come man. Up... Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't come up with anything specific, but I, I mean, I just, I remember that, that notion of not feeling understood and like, as though it was impossible to be understood. And I think we don't meet really any other characters that are fascinated with the human world. I'm sure there are just like given the fact that it's the ocean. Um, but obviously Ariel's the main character. And so I, I kind of let my mind wander maybe into fan fiction and wondered, well, what if she had met another mermaid that was also, you know, had interest in this, or if she had had even just some more like strong female figures to say like, Oh, this is just a crush. You're going to be fine. (laughs) Maybe she wouldn't have given up her life for a man. And that's a good thing to bring up because like, like so many of, of the Disney heroines, she has no mother. In fact, her mother mm-hmm. is her mother mentioned. Am I just, doesn't Triton say something about, I'm glad your mother's not alive to hear this or something. Am I making that up? Oh, I don't remember. Anyway, uh, her mother, sounds her, right. her mother is not a presence in this movie in any way. Right. What's weird though, that something that I noticed again, watching it later as an adult is she has six older sisters that's not weird but like but like they are the ones that point out to triton that she's in love and they know exactly what's happening they know they you know they interpret her behavior correctly um and yet none of them like have a real presence as a as a role model or as a figure to to question her and say hey who's this guy who you know what's going on it's it's Triton asking Sebastian what's going on with Ariel. Um, and I thought, oh, man, that was a real... I mean, I know it, it had to happen for the plot to move forward, but um, as, having been a teenage girl, that would be a real missed opportunity for a mentor to not kind of come alongside the 16-year-old and say, hey, this is this is a phase. <laughs> and yeah. you may not want to, like, give up your tail forever, you know? Well, I mean, which is why, one reason why Frozen is interesting is it responds to that very thing, right? It, mm, it, it takes yeah. the junior knows best plot and also the, the dead parents in it. It turns them into something a little more productive, but we're a long way from talking about Frozen. Mm. Yeah. I was going to say that the the reason the older sisters know that she's in love is because they've watched other Disney movies because this is the classic <laughs> Disney move of of when you're in love you um you sing a song kind of mindlessly to yourself yes. <laughs> and play Dance with flowers around. yes yeah and play with flowers yeah <laughs> classically with Cinderella but also with uh in Lady and the Tramp it's what uh um darling or whatever her name is does when when she's about to have a baby is, is she starts mindlessly singing to herself so uh, oh, that's right. it, it, it it goes for all kinds of love and the sleeping beauty aurora does that when she returns to the cabin she's kind of humming their song that's yeah. true huh yeah. that's funny don't I ask yourself how they that. sing underwater but that's, that's like asking what they eat i i get that there's no such thing as mermaids yeah, i know <laughs> The only other person in the movie who kind of shares her fascination with human culture is Scuttle, the uh, the, mm. the idiot seagull. <laughs> played as I learned as I learned this time, I'd never realized this. He's played by the classic comedian Buddy Hackett. Yeah, I watched some of the behind the scenes footage, and man, he really is hamming it up the whole time when he's when he's doing the the lines for Scuttles. So it's it's pretty, it's it's worth it's worth seeing. It's pretty funny. 
I would say Flounder is also interested in the human world to a certain extent. To the degree that Flounder is a character at all. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. Scuttle is much more of a, of a character. So we can stay on Scuttle for, for a minute and, uh, if there's anything else to say about him. I think it's it's amazing that he gets um, nothing right. Like, right. Yeah. <laughs> He's wrong about every single thing he can be wrong about. <laughs> Which I think just kind of shows even like, I guess, seeing it through this lens that this is kind of a phase that like could have been avoided. I think that's kind of what I felt by the end of the movie after watching it a couple times. But like he like feeds into Ariel's obsession where like anyone that was even half knowledgeable would have maybe turned her off because they would have been like, oh, it's just a fork. They use it to eat. And she would have been like, oh, OK, that's not very cool. <laughs> but because he creates these objects, he transforms these everyday objects into like these incredible, you know, it's a, it was used to make fine music. And, you know, he makes he adds the magic to these ordinary objects for her um, and really feeds into that obsession of these are magical mystical things that oh. are very different from anything we have under the sea you know that's a that's a really interesting point and now i'm imagining a much better sequel to the little mermaid in which ariel <laughs> becomes disenchanted with the human world because it's not what scuttle uh it's scuttle not yeah he, he totally <laughs> totally misrepresents it it might be all his fault <laughs> and the the the, uh, the the second movie could end with her killing and eating Scuttle. <laughs> Perfect. I'm not sure seagulls are really edible, but hey. I thought you had, you said you had an idea for a better sequel. <laughs> <laughs> the I I've not seen the sequel. It has to do with her daughter, right? Who goes through oh, something yeah. very similar to her. Uh, yes, she wants to be a mermaid. Oh, so uh, it is kind of the same thing I just said. Yeah, and uh, goes to a sea witch and is transformed into a mermaid. And spoilers, Ariel, I believe it's been years since I saw it, but like turn gets turned back into a mermaid in order to go search for her daughter. And meets like Flounder as an adult, and he has kids. It's a, it's, it's interesting. I remember watching it as a kid and being like, I don't know about this. <laughs> I don't know if I like this continuation of this story. Yeah, I have not seen it, I'm glad to say. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that I've ever seen any of the direct-to-video sequels. Maybe I saw the Aladdin one. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I know that I saw Aladdin 2 and 3. And, uh, yeah, I saw Lion King 1 and a half also. I didn't see so, that. Oh, I, yeah. I've I seen a few know. of them. But... <laughs> Yeah, not. <laughs> anyway, I want to we're, return we're to, to the we're quest... purists on this show. <laughs> I, I want to return to the question of how boring Flounder is. Did did either of you see the terrible live action version yes. of this they put on TV? Yes, and, they did and watch you've it. got to put live action in quotes, right? Because about half the movie is just <laughs> the animated stuff. Yes, but Flounder is such a boring, non-essential character that in the live action scenes, he was just played by a voiceless puppet. Mhm. I didn't. I didn't realize there was a live action. Oh, it's, it's awful. It's it's truly terrible. <laughs> but it, half of it again is just the movie. Like they show the animated movie and then they cut to live quote unquote. Well, no, it's live action, but it's a lot of puppets for uh, for the uh, the musical scenes. Hmm. It was a like live for television. It's, yeah. It was like a 
I believe there is. I believe they are making a movie action yes. coming though, right? Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, oh, if course. they can make another book on it, why won't they? Right. Absolutely. Yeah, because the, the big the big development is that the um, the woman who plays Ariel in the new movie is not white. Her yes. name is Hallie Bailey, because I read it and and read it well, Hallie, Hallie Berry. Barry, and I thought, well, she's too old to play Princess Ariel. Yeah, anyway, Thunder yeah. does. And on, like. I'm not. I'm not terribly going to bat for Flounder. I think they they should have done much more for him as a character. But he does drive the plot in a couple points. Like when uh, he he tries to step in and save Ariel because she missed the the dance or the yes. the musical performance yeah. and ends up accidentally spilling the beans that <laughs> that they were talking to Scuttle, which sets off the whole like um, you can't. Like, why are you with humans and that sort of thing? And then um, he does um, at least try and pursue her to Ursula's and mm-hmm. um, and helps her. Uh, he and Sebastian help her, you know, once Ursula's changed her into a human, um, <laughs> however many uh, fathoms deep in the water she is. So she can't. <laughs> That's right. Uh, he does save her or, life, doesn't he? Yeah, he saves her life there. So he's not. Yeah. You're right that there's not much to him. He's he's a yeah. he's a very flat character, but well, this is this is a movie with one of the great side characters, Sebastian, and so it's it's hard mm-hmm. for uh, it's hard for Flounder to measure up. Yeah, I think that's I think that that's it. Like Sebastian got all the Flounder scenes, and so Aww, too many animal sidekicks. Yeah, but Sebastian is terrific. If we want to move on to him, he's yeah, yeah. What makes him so terrific, Josh? Well, I mean, I'm I'm a big fan of the music. So the, <laughs> you know, the uh, the under the sea is is great. But he's also, I mean, he is really he is genuinely funny. Like his mm-hmm. um his scene when he when Ariel's falling asleep, but he's trying to tell her to get ready, and he's like, "You gotta bat your <laughs> eyes and pucker up." Is, is I don't know. I think it's really funny. So, um, yeah, I think he's he's got some good comedy scenes, and then he's got that whole little uh it's almost a short <laughs> that's in the middle of this movie when he's in the kitchen uh-huh. yeah. with uh, the chef yeah, and it feels Lord. very i think i think what it it really brought home for me is that we're we're now into an era where the animators who are who are coming up with these movies and 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 making these movies not only grew up on the classic disney so they're trying to pay homage to the classic disney but they also grew up on looney tunes yeah I was and they're say. also trying to work and they're working that in as well. Cause that, that is a very, very... tune sequence. Yes. You know what so... it reminds me of? And man, this is a deep cut, but um, do you remember, you know, Roger Rabbit before the movie, yeah. honey, I shrunk the kids. They showed a, a Roger Rabbit short called tummy trouble. And, and the, uh, the sequence here reminds me very much of tummy trouble. Although really probably tummy trouble reminds me of this. Cause I think that was probably later than this. But anyway, yeah, it's it's very Looney Tunes. Yeah. But it doesn't detract from the movie. I mean, oh, I think all. we talked about this with uh um it was actually I think it was on the Fox and Hound episode when, you know, Boomer and uh, uh whatever. Go ahead. No, no, yeah, I was just, yeah, Green. Yeah, I don't remember his yeah. name. 
yeah, whatever their their name is. Like we talked about how like they don't really seem to fit in that movie. It's like there's almost like two movies that they tried to smash together. Whereas this one, I think it it doesn't detract. Like it's it's just a fun, lively little uh, little goofy sequence. Yeah, I mean you could probably yeah. excise it and it wouldn't ruin the movie. And and Le Poisson is probably the weakest song in the movie. But when you got a movie and Le Poisson is the weakest song, you know you got you got a pretty good soundtrack. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else to say about Sebastian? What do you guys think about him? Do you like him, Michael? Yeah, I do. I, I do like <laughs> <Okay>. Sebastian. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm, I know I'm well known on this show for not liking cutesy sidekick characters, but he, he's not really cutesy. He has his own personality, and he's not there just to, just or even primarily to be cute. So I, um, I, I do like him quite a bit. Uh, you know, um, it's a non-Jamaican guy doing a Jamaican accent. It's, it's a, it's a. True. In 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 2020, that that feels different than it would have in 1989, and I, I think you just kind of got to go with it. Yeah. Yeah. I think more. I mean, this is not necessarily about his character characterization, but like the position that he's put in. I watching it again. Why is the like royal composer put in charge of? Yeah, that's the, true. like babysitting right like isn't that a weird when he's like and you're just the crab to do it i'm like he is why like what qualifications does he have that like any other person or creature under the ocean doesn't you know like it just maybe he knows you, her the best or something you don't think I joseph weird. Haydn spent a lot of time in the <laughs> in the nursery at esterhazy i never imagined that he did but i maybe i don't know yeah i just thought that was odd we're watching it <laughs> Because he he mutters a couple of things like I should be I should be writing music or I should be and I'm like oh yeah he should be like <laughs> right. what is hey, wait a second also she's so twenty weird. times bigger than him how is he supposed to stop her from doing anything yeah I don't know maybe he just needed someone he could trust but I it seemed very odd I do think the muttering though is part of what like makes makes him a great character like he mutters through this whole movie like uh-huh. it, the, the first time we see him he's already muttering about like if ariel would ever show up to rehearsal you know like it's his uh what is that incredulousness or whatever about everything that's happening to him and how did i end up in this situation from the word go that i think just makes him like a, like you your your heart is immediately with him you know like you want to see him succeed because he is in this just uh i don't know he's <laughs> He's, he's always being put in impossible situations. Sure. But, but there's also a real big-heartedness to him, the, the, this sense yeah. that he would really like to harsh Ariel's mellow but just can't bring himself to do it because deep down he loves her. And that's a very appealing quality. Yeah. Okay. It, it is a very appealing quality, but another thought that I had watching this as an adult, again, like he is the only like responsible adult, and he chooses, I think, what was the wrong option, was to not tell like king triton what's going on like he like thinking back i was like he probably should have just left ariel there and gone and gotten triton and and worked everything out but but he is i mean i guess he's a big softy and that of course helps the plot to continue but i was like again i I feel like an adult has failed ariel (laughs) by failing to like step in it's too bad triton didn't kill him I know. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, basically. <laughs> I'm no, going to kill I myself just, a crab I, is what he's going to say. <laughs> <laughs> and 
I do, and I always did. I love Sebastian, and I always have. And I, of course, he has to side with Ariel, and he has to be a big softy. But I just, I just, you know, like one more opportunity for a, a mentor or adult to kind of step in to her sixteen-year-old life and maybe be a word of wisdom. And it, it just kind of didn't happen for her. Yeah, I think I think that's a I think that's a really good point. Is that. Yeah, that, she really has no positive influences in her life. She she just kind of does whatever she wants, and he, everybody is either in love with her or un, unwilling or unable to stop her. We're back to Ginger knows best. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, and I think Sebastian does does fill that Junior knows best role a little more than than Triton does. But they kind of, I think they they're playing the exact same role in Ariel's life in a lot of ways. You know, like we don't really see. Um, I mean, he is literally the the person that Triton puts in to be his proxy, you know, like I want to keep an eye on her, but I can't. So you are it, you know, um, and they do both have that big hardness towards her. So, yeah, I think it, it's, it's a good point, Emily, that, that she really needs a needs a mentor in her life. In a weird and way, that, Sebastian is like a villain's henchman, a comedic henchman more than he is a, a hero's sidekick. In the sense that Triton is the heavy in the movie. I mean, he's not the bad guy, but he's the kind of voice of authority. If Triton actually got out in the middle of everything, this movie couldn't happen. And so instead, he sends this laughably ineffective. Sure. Right. I mean, he. So he's he's basically the uh, the little goblin guy from the Black <laughs> Cauldron, except we love him. You know. Except Triton's not evil, so Sebastian's not evil. Right. Right. And I, I think that's just another. I think that that's just another way that this movie kind of works. And the like, at the flip, like the flipping of all these things that you you'd expect it to be uh, a human girl wanting to become a mermaid, right? Because the mermaid is the enchanted kingdom. You would expect it to be, you know, that the 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 bad guy has the the little blackie, but it's it's the good guy. You know, like I don't know. They, I I think it. There, there's a lot of things that they're playing with trope wise in this movie that that really worked. Um, because they they manipulated it in that way. Yeah. Well, and the, yeah. the villain does have henchmen, but they're not comedic in any way, right? Flotsam and Jetsam are probably the most legitimately scary things in the movie. Yeah. We watched yeah, this movie with only... my four-year-old niece, and she said, I don't like those creepy things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We can't move away from Sebastian before I mention that my, my daughter is like one of her favorite moments in this movie is when uh sebastian is going in to tell king triton and he doesn't know that king triton doesn't know anything and but he's like trying to psych himself up and then he does that <laughs> that little yelp you know like yeah the, the voice crack yeah. yeah yeah that that gets them all rolling on the floor every time so <laughs> But yeah, maybe we should move move on to Flotsam and Jetsam, and and then from there to Ursula. So sure, Flotsam and Jetsam. Uh, my niece was very interested as to whether they were boys or girls, mm-hmm. which they are boys. They're, I mean, clearly they're supposed to be androgynous, just like Ursula is, but she calls them boys at one point. So that conversation went nowhere. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine us talking for forty-five minutes about uh, about the the ambiguous gender of Flotsam and Jetsam. <laughs> well, should we just talk about Ursula, who is one of the all-time classic Disney villains? She's yes, incredible. Absolutely. 
My niece wanted us to know that she didn't think she was that scary, and in fact, she thought she was really pretty. And then later in the movie, oh. she decided she wasn't. Four-year-olds oh. are interesting. <laughs> Fickle, it sounds like. <laughs> well, you know. Sometimes I think she just says things just to say them. <laughs> Villains have had a surge, though, lately. Villains have become very, very popular these days. I was at a makeup store recently and noticed that Ursula now has her own um, eyeshadow palette. So if, so if you want to look like a drag queen, you can... Right. Because Ursula is based on uh, a notorious drag queen named Divine, who's... what? What is the John Waters movie Divine is in? Um, is it Pink Flamingos? Where she eats a dog turd like... <laughs> Like actually eats an actual dog turd in the movie. Wow! So that's that's who that's who Ursula is supposed to look like. So it's funny they're selling makeup uh, based yes. on Ursula because really you're you're just telling yeah. little girls to dress like drag queens. Well, interestingly, and I don't I don't know anything about drag queens or anything else. Like I I am the most like uh, I I'm way out of my depth here. But <laughs> um, the the uh, I saw just the headline of an article. I didn't end up reading it about you know, uh, um, how drag queens have been basically written out of the uh, cosmetic history and how they um, actually oh. um, had came up with many of the, uh, what, the techniques and things that are, are used mainstream today hmm. were, um, what was, what, what's the word when, for, like, the, for, they were on the forefront of some of that stuff were, were drag queens. So, um, I don't know. I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure. A quick Google search would get you that article. And makeup is very important to Ursula, right? I mean, one of mm-hmm. one of the the scenes that kind of establishes who she is is she squeezes that clam and uses its body as uh, as lipstick. Lipstick. Which I I don't know about you guys, but that's that's an image that has stuck in my mind for the thirty years since I first saw this movie. Yeah, we did have an we had a Little Mermaid uh, computer game. And one of the like mini games within it was you could choose from a number of, of squished clams with different colors and you could put them on her and she would react nastily toward for whatever reason that you had picked the wrong color and she didn't like it. You could do Ursula's makeup. I was also wondering, though, if that makeup scene was a bit of an homage back to uh, the rescuers. When, uh, uh, yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, because I know that a lot of the animators at that time, I mean, that was kind of, um, oh, I forget who did Medusa now, one of the original nine old men. I want to say Milk Call, but that, that may be wrong. But anyway, like, I know that it was, you know, uh, so many of the animators in this new era of Disney are, are still looking up so much to those nine old men. I, I, I was wondering if that was a bit of a throwback to that. The guy who animated Ursula's name is Ruben Aquino. I don't know anything about him. Hmm. Yeah, neither do I. But I, th- I think that's a good catch. It certainly it certainly looks like that. And and Medusa uh, Medusa and Ursula have quite a bit in common just in terms of movement and character. I mean, Ursula is obviously much larger. But other than mm-hmm. that, I think if if you had to pick a precursor to Ursula, it would probably be Madame Medusa. Definitely. I do think there's a bit of foreshadowing there too with the with the mirror. So you see her, you see her in the mirror as Medusa, and then of course we're going to see her again in the in the mirror because the the mirror, um, the mirror always reveals your 
who you really are, right? Oh, that's true. So yeah. even when you're when you're in a another character that the mirror reveals you, or when you're a vampire and you walk in front of a mirror, it reveals you as a vampire because you don't ref- have a reflection or whatever. You know, like that's a that's an old uh, an old trope, but yeah, there's a little foreshadowing there. Well, I feel like there's got to be more to say about Ursula. Yeah. Well, I was thinking along her lines, just her her, her thing seems to be, uh, I mean, you mentioned how large she is. And then, of course, she becomes extremely mm. large at the end. And uh, just this idea of, um, I, I don't know, the, I, I think it's really um, an interesting symbology of, you know, what what evil is in this movie. You know, like evil is this this desire this this unrestrained desire for more and more and more and um that she wants she wants everything that she can she can get you know and then uh yeah but i I don't know if i have it i have anywhere to go beyond that oh and, and she gets it by figuratively devouring other beings right so we see her eat that shrimp i think it is but then also her whole thing is these poor unfortunate souls who make deals with her. She somehow like expands to take what is essential about them and they shrivel down to these little semi-vegetable husks. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yike. Another image that has clearly stuck with me, because anytime anybody talks about colon polyps, I always picture the poor unfortunate souls <laughs> from The Little Mermaid. <laughs> I don't know what a colon polyp looks like, but I want it to look like that. I want it to be the uh, the lost soul that. of a mermaid. Yeah, that's probably it. So her presence in the in the movie, and I have not read the Hans Christian Andersen uh, fairy tale, so I don't know if if this is a Disney innovation or if it's straight out of the fairy tale. But her presence makes the makes the story. Uh, a version of the Faust legend, selling your soul to the devil in exchange mm-hmm. for whatever, you know, whatever the thing you want is. Faust does it for uh, all of human knowledge. Ariel does it because she's in love with a boy, but, you know, to each his <laughs> Same own. Same difference. Yeah. But, I mean, that's that's one of the the kind of evergreen plots of Western culture, and, and Little Mermaid fits in very nicely, to the extent that I think if I had to teach Faust again, I might lead with the Little Mermaid. Oh, yeah, that'd be an interesting pairing. Yeah, and I think, uh, actually, Emily, that as you've been talking, the, I've, I've, I've not considered the lack of role models in, in Ariel's life, but that's really what pushes her towards Ursula. Like, she's she's desperate to achieve this dream of hers and she has no one who is, uh, helping her along that path, you know? So she, Mm -hmm. and she's willing, I mean, she sings it in the song and again, this is just, you know, foreshadowing, you know, like what would I give? Um, just for a day. Yeah. Just for a day. And so, um, her being in that state of mind already of like, I'll, I'll give anything to do this. Um, and then being pushed towards the, the negative mentor, I guess, you know, the anti-mentor who's going to come along and um, guide her in exactly the wrong way or guide her not, not because she wants Ariel actually to achieve her dream, but because it's, it's, uh, it's helping her to devour Ariel and, and ultimately King Triton. So I guess that's another thing about Ursula is that, um, you know, 
Ariel is just a means to her, which is another way of, you know, always clearly identifying villains is when they're not seeing the person in front of them other than as, as a means to something. I, I like the idea that she's going to Ursula as kind of a female role model because she doesn't have any other because there is something maternal, although not nurturing, about Ursula, right? She she is simultaneously hyper-feminine and... Mm. Not asexual is the wrong term, but she's she's not it's not she's she's not the object of anybody's sexual desire. So so she has all these feminine characteristics, but she's not um, she's not sexy. Uh, so it, there, there is something in that sense maternal about her. Also, um, in an earlier version of the script, I believe she was King Triton's sister. Yes. I think I've I've heard that as well. And I, I was wondering, too, I mean, she talks about her time in the palace, mm-hmm. um, but it's never really explained. I will say whether this, like, does or undoes anything in the sequel, in, when her daughter is involved, she ha- Ursula has a sister, um, and it's Ursula's sister who is, plays the, the villain. Um, but, yeah, I always I found that kind of interesting how she definitely had time in the palace at one point. But um, I have also heard that, yeah, that's the theory that she was Triton's sister and was cast out for whatever reason. Mm. Yeah, I kind of like the fact that you don't really know. Like, mm-hmm. like there's there's those hints dropped, but there's not much to it. I didn't know if it tied into any sort of other pre-mythology. Like, I don't know if Triton does either, you know. Like, does, does Triton have a... Uh, you know, like I know Poseidon or whatever, but I don't, I don't yeah. know anything else. You know, like does she have an analog or is she like a direct, um, directly related to any actual mythology? Is Triton related to any actual mythology, or is it just kind of uh, fairy tale Disney? Tr- Triton no- is Poseidon's nothing. son in Greek mythology, but yeah, he doesn't really have much to do with this Triton. He's not a merman. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure about Ursula. I can't think of I can't think of anyone that would tie in off the top of my head. Yeah. Uh, you know, she is not unlike Medea. Ah, sure. Um just just in the sense that Medea is this like um ball of feminine rage by the time you get to the plays called Medea. Um I I think Ursula's well, I was going to say she's craftier than Medea, but that's not fair either. Medea, uh, Medea is also crafty. If you don't know the story, um, Jason of Jason and the Argonauts fame marries Medea to get out of a tough scrape. She's a witch, and she kind of she kills her whole family to help him. And then when he gets back to, I think it's Corinth is where he's from. He dumps her to marry a princess, and her revenge is to kill the princess and to kill the princess's father, and also to kill her two children with Jason. Um, so there, there's, there's that kind of underhandedness and, and, uh, the, the, the fact that they're both witches, I, I don't know if they had, yeah they had Medea in mind or Medea is just one in a line of, um, powerful, angry, supernatural women in mythology and legend and folklore. Uh, but I, I, I definitely see some, uh, some parallels between the two of them. Yeah, Definitely. So I was going back. I was I was thinking more on that um, Faustian bargain also um, because I, I obviously that plays a huge role in the in the plot line of the movie and um, I, I, I was I was just thinking about the the um, the fact that this is what 
what she sees as her only possible way towards um, becoming a human. Although obviously we, we find out at the end that her dad is also has the power yeah, and the capability. What? Yeah, that was a shocker as a kid. You're like, How, he could just do this the whole time. Yeah, and and presumably he could just do it if she wants to come spend President's Day weekend with them too. Right. <laughs> Right, I always wondered about that as a kid. Crazy. But I do, yeah, I, I do think, um, but I and I, you know, I I um I think that there is a a, a maybe powerful under theme in this, you know, of like the the thing that you want, um, and you may want it, like you may think there that there's only the only way to get it is like, you know, um, the the ends justifies the means, but often there's another way, and it might be a harder way or a more difficult way, or in this case it's a way of it's a path of love you know like um he because out of his love for her he does it and so had she pursued that relationship in a different way or had he understood her in a different way then it kind of you know obviously we don't have the movie anymore so that's not that's not a good story but like um there there is a there is a different path there and i i think that is something worth considering and i think it's also um you know all the all the mer people are at the wedding along with the the humans and so it does seem like there's there is really some you know coming together of the families here it doesn't it doesn't seem like it's um the ursula deal where it's you know you are you're giving up this life and you will be completely cut off from it you'll never see your father and and your sisters again um life's full of difficult choices ain't it <laughs> whatever she said you know um like it, it really seems like there's there's another path here when you when you introduce love into it rather than just a uh you know power yeah yeah just power a buy and sell yeah i think yes right yeah and, and she she makes this laughably bad deal that probably she could only make because ariel is 16 and you know kind of dizzy <laughs> and in love you know like the idea that she would have three days to make this person fall in love with her when the one thing that he w- knew about her was that she sings beautifully. Oh, and you can't have your voice. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. But that's a, that's the classic. Uh, that's the the three day deal. You know, like we even saw that in Oliver and Company. That's <laughs> true. <Yeah. laughs> but three is such just like a I don't know just a symbolically powerful number it just it's, it just comes up all over the place in fairy tales so that, so that that part made made makes sense in the in the sense of this is a fairy tale but you're right that it, it is a laughable deal if you if you step out of that framework at all it's like wait why what <laughs> well and to return this the deal? to return to the notion that she's the closest thing Ariel has to a, a mentor figure she gives this kind of half-hearted explanation of how you can attract a man, you know? Uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Don't forget the importance of body language. (laughs) I remember watching that with my cousin Christy when I was a kid, and uh, Ursula says that, and Christy yelled, "Uh, what do you know about it? (laughs) (laughs) It, I mean, that might be the perfect segue. I would be kicking myself if we didn't talk a little bit about body image. I know that that is is probably not as relatable to you guys, but um, I think this movie has a ton to say to young girls about what their bodies look like. We'll say more. So, I mean, Ariel is, is perfect, right? Her, her waist is 10 inches around and she wears very little clothing. Um, and oh, I know. Even, 
like, oh yeah, you know. And, <laughs> um, and I think I was trying to think about kind of how I was trying to remember if or how that affected me as a kid. And I'm sure it did, but maybe just not consciously. Um, but I, I think another, another interesting comparison as looking with, looking at Ursula as her mentor is, is just the, com- they're complete opposites physically. Um, Ursula is, is overweight, um, and evil and Ariel is tiny, you know, tinily skinny and, um, is the one that we are rooting for throughout the entire film. And I just, um, I think that on some level that has to be damaging when you're, when your hero is, is just so perfectly, you know, her, her physique is so perfect. Um, and I'm, and I know that this is done with all of the, um, Disney princesses. There's been, there's been years of complaints about we, we want a princess that, that is not white and we want a princess that is not, um, tiny um but i i think ariel even more so that is really just in your face um because she runs around in a bra right um and i think that i think that that can be particularly damaging for young girls to look at this um mermaid who is something someone mythical you know that we want to be like um but the only way to be like her is to be very thin and with gorgeous red hair and huge blue eyes I mean, was that your experience with it growing up, Emily? I mean, did you did you feel um, put upon by the by the way women are portrayed in this movie? Um, I think it I it had to have been a, a combination of many factors in my life. Sure. Um, but absolutely. I mean, we my sister and I grew up going to our neighborhood pool and we swam almost every single day during the summer. So we were, we were constantly pretending we were mermaids. And, um, and I definitely remember once, um, I got a little bit older and, and started wearing those two piece swimsuits and being conscious of, Mm -hmm. of sitting in on the beach chair and, and sucking in my stomach so that, or covering it with a towel or, um, just being aware of my body in a way that, I probably didn't need to be at that age um, at an, at an age where I probably still could have just been careless and, and free. Um, I had had this, this role model of someone swimming through the ocean with their hair looking perfectly um, being so thin and, and so beautiful. And I felt that I needed to reflect that in my recreation time. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think it was just because of Ariel. That would be unfair to say, yeah, this, this movie ruined my body image, you know, um, because being people is all about context. And, um, there's always multiple things that feed into that, but, um, but it, it definitely was something that was noticeable as a kid. I remember thinking, um, like, where's her shirt? Like, why doesn't it, like, even, even the men, you know, like even Triton, like, why isn't he wearing a shirt? Um, now I'm just picturing Triton wearing so like a, clothing. wearing like a, like a shirt. I was thinking a Hawaiian shirt. <laughs> that would be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think a Hawaiian shirt is perfect. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think there is something really, uh, 
significant there. As as you were talking, I was uh, thinking, trying to think through the contrasting villain uh, and heroine type things. And you're right. Like um, in, I mean, going back all the way to Snow White, you have the beautiful queen who's jealous because this new girl is is becoming more beautiful. But they're they're both meant to be beautiful, you know. And in Sleeping Beauty, Maleficent is portrayed as uh tall and thin i mean she's definitely not like ursula in any way um as far as her physique you know um and so yeah the only other like really um i think this goes back to what michael was saying about the the motherliness of ursula like the only other more rounded um <laughs> feminine figures we have are like the fairy godmother or lady um, cluck the little yeah lady cluck the little the the little fairies and sleeping beauty um that take care of you know that take care of her while she's growing up um and so so we do get the the motherly figures um but but yeah like not but they're all they're all also good you know like we're not we don't have this kind of idea of good is thin and evil is is uh, yeah. overweight yeah like you like you do in the in this movie and in several others in the Disney Renaissance I mean I'm thinking Governor Ratcliffe from Pocahontas mm-hmm. is also very, very fat. But, I mean, it's not mm-hmm. universal. The bad guy in Hunchback of Notre Dame is very, very skinny, so I don't know. Yeah. But what's in, what's interesting is this is one of the few, maybe not one of the few, but it's a female villain, and, and the, the physical contrast between the two is so uh, so striking. Yeah. Do you have anything else to say about that, Emily? Um, not really. I think I, I think I, uh, could step down off of my soapbox, but, um, yeah, I just, I think that this movie more than a lot of the other comparing it to the, the princess movies, um, that you guys have gone through so far. I think this, this movie is much more about body image, um, than a lot of the others, even in the fact that she wants, she changes half of her body um in order to be with a man and that is always you know cause for contention among um like feminist disney fans but that's even worse um, than greece (laughs) yes yeah yeah i don't know i think it i think it sends some really mm, maybe mixed is too kind but it, it sends some very clear messages about how you should feel about your body and if you don't feel that way then maybe changes are necessary um which i am not a huge fan of as an adult woman (laughs) well and and ursula also her her suggestions of how she can land no pun intended uh eric are all about you know how good looking she is Mm-hmm. There's no sense that he would be in love with her for any other reason, even though yeah. in r- real life he's in love with her because of her singing talent and because she saved him. So yeah, there I, I can I can see that there's some um, unpleasant messages to young girls, especially if you watch the movie over and over and over again as as kids do. Yeah, yeah. It's also in the example in her song when she when she's talking about the. Uh, uh, this one wants to be thinner and this one wants to get the girl and do I help yes. them? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And by helping them, the, the woman becomes longer and thinner and the man who is scrawny, becomes very buff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's true. There, are, it's not like there's a lot of um, out of shape men in the movie either. Yeah. Well, at some point we got to talk about the soundtrack, right? Yeah, uh, I was I was thinking that we should we should we should get there. The soundtrack um, introduces Broadway music to uh, Disney films in a lot of ways, such that I think when people of a certain age first encounter Broadway, they think of it as being an extension of these Disney movies. When in, I mean, in fact, the opposite is true, right? We we know now, 28 movies in, that th- this is not always the format of the music in Disney movies, and it's really a a feature of the. Uh, the, the Disney Renaissance that does it. So you, you have um, the, the music here was written by Alan Menken, who would go on to do many of the uh, many of the movies from the 90s. And uh, Howard Ashman, who died not too long after this, he also did Beauty and the Beast and a few songs from Aladdin. But he died, I believe, of AIDS in the early 90s. Mm. Um, and yeah, that's right. Both of those guys are uh, Broadway veterans. I believe they they did uh, Little Shop of Horrors um, and and some other things. So, uh, you know, I I have almost nothing bad to say about any of the songs from this movie. As I said, Le Poisson is probably the weakest, but Le Poisson is a pretty great song. You know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it is interesting. I think you're you're right that like especially on. Um, um, Howard Ashman coming in really, really married this, you know, this idea of um, Broadway musical to the animation, and that's what he wanted to do. You know, that's um, that I was watching some of the bonus features, and um, they have a just they have snippets of a talk that he gave within Disney, and kind of a lecture that he gave. I guess they had these lunchtime lectures um, where he was talking about what he was trying to do of uh, you know bringing like, and he, he kind of went through. Uh, musical theater's history and tied it into uh, you know where it had intersected in the past with with film and with animation. It was it was really interesting and it made me like uh, just you know like I'll get on my quick soapbox you know like this is what Disney Plus should have you know like yeah, they have yeah. That, you know that lecture should be on Disney Plus like why that's is it what the not plus you know? should be. yeah that's what the plus should be but no yeah that's not never gonna happen um in, instead like. Uh, my parents have Disney Plus, and they don't even have that same featurette on the Disney Plus. It's it's only on my uh, iTunes one. So, um, but yeah. Anyway, uh, this is so why yeah, everybody think, should buy physical media. That's right. But uh, I think we should really credit um, him, and uh, as you know, like he he's such a huge part of this Disney Renaissance, and of you know that whole. We we almost read it backwards from this time into you know the earlier movies like we think of Cinderella or of as you know Snow White or whatever because they get lumped in with all the Disney princesses of being more a musical feature like this um, but it was it was really the marrying of these two um, genres uh, with with Howard Ashman when he came in um, and of Alan Menken. And then, then of course, a lot of these these movies end up being Broadway musicals in their own right, often with added songs. Yeah, The Lion King, probably the most successful of those. But it's it's getting to the point where just like there's a live action feature for all of these movies, there's also a a Broadway feature, which a staged, yeah, for some reason bothers me less. Although, I think you were there when we went with the honors group at Crown to see Beauty and the Beast. To see Beauty and the Beast, it was awful, just awful 
<laughs> and I don't know if it was just the touring company or what, but it, I, I felt like they took uh, they took a beautiful movie and added a bunch of DreamWorks style sex jokes yeah. into it. Yeah, they did. But I haven't I haven't mm-hmm. seen the Broadway Little Mermaid, which is supposed to be very good. Yeah. It is. It's very good. Wesley and I went. I think it was actually one of our first dates off campus. Um, we went to see the Little Mermaid. It was very sweet. But but speaking of that, I think there's there is a way in which uh, this Disney Renaissance kept musicals, even Broadway musicals, alive, because Broadway Absolutely. is such a an elite thing. Like it's it's difficult to go and see a show, particularly if you're if you're not already near New York City, um, and so this is bringing musicals into the homes of millions of you know young kids who are who are growing up on this music and understanding what a musical is um in a in a very what mainstream sort of fashion um which you know in the in an earlier version of hollywood you would have got it through you know my fair lady or um mm-hmm. uh what um, i'm blanking on uh, <laughs> Oklahoma. on my musical yes exactly but <laughs> whatever <laughs> Sound of Music is what I was trying to get at. There you go. My, <laughs> my brain just totally froze. But yeah, you know, like um, that that had soured in Hollywood. They'd stopped making musicals in Hollywood as well. The, and the so, movie musical kind of waxes and wanes uh, every couple decades. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this I think certainly this this brought the idea of musical theater to a lot of people our age um, who otherwise wouldn't have discovered it. Um, although even then. Um, Musicals stayed animated for a very long time. I remember when that movie, Moulin Rouge, which we also talk about in this week's Christian Humanist podcast, when that came out, everybody said, oh, well, the movie musical is back because that was a big hit. But the movie musical did not come back for some time after that. And maybe still isn't back. I don't know. No, I think I think it's come back and I mean, I can think of several musicals that have come out in the past years. Like the one that's coming to mind is La La Land. That's true. Yeah. Um, I think it's I think it's making a comeback. Um, well, Cats, oh, obviously. Well, that, that's gonna kill. <laughs> that's gonna kill the movie musical again. <laughs> no, but I think there's been several. Even even um, like from Broadway, like Into the Woods has recent Disney. You recently did Into the Woods and mm-hmm. um, ones like that. It was a pretty have, good version, I thought gained popularity it was good anyway so so little mermaid's super important for that reason and if you look at the music in this movie versus the music even in oliver and company which was just the year before this there is no comparison yeah this is these these are all really solid great classic songs really almost almost every one of them is classic what's your what's your favorite go ahead family what's your favorite um I mean, I it, under the sea feels cliche, but it just—it's just so. My sister and I used to sing that um, to each other and with each other endlessly, and and I think that one it just it always I can I always makes me want to dance, which I think is what I usually am looking for in a song. That's a fantastic <laughs> song. I mean, and the, and the <laughs> yeah. performance by Samuel Wright as Sebastian is really really remarkable. I think. Yeah. Yeah, under the sea, it's it's an incredible like the there's there's a lot of great wordplay. There's a lot of uh, I mean, it's got everything you want, you know. Like, um, it's it, I mean, if you're looking for a song to dance to, but that also has like clever lyrics and it's funny and 
Um, I, I really like Under the Sea. I, I, I think it's my favorite of the movie, but I, I love the music in this movie all the way through. So For me, yeah. it's Kiss the Girl. Yeah, kiss, I mean, Kiss the Girl is the other one that I would say is the only one that would rival it. And that, I mean, that goes back to, you know, again, Sebastian. <laughs> What's the guy's name? His his performances on both those songs is just terrific. Yeah. Samuel Wright is the is the guy who plays Sebastian. South Carolina's yeah. own, Josh. <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, and, and really, we should talk about Part of Your World, which is a great example of a Broadway convention that, that really dominates these Disney Renaissance pictures called the I Want Song, where the lead mm. character stands in front of the front of the audience and sings exactly what she wants from life. And then, of course, the play ends up being about whether she gets it or not. And Part of Your World is a fantastic example of an I Want Song, maybe one of the best uh, the equivalents uh, in the other the other Disney Renaissance movies, Aladdin has um, the reprise to One Step Ahead, One Jump Ahead, is that the name of it? Uh, Belle, yeah. and especially the reprise to Belle from Beauty and the Beast, uh, Colors of the Wind in Pocahontas. So, I mean, it, it becomes such a cliche in these movies that eventually they have to stop doing it because... You can you can almost play them over the top of one another. They're so similar, but uh, this is this is the one that brings that to Disney, and it's I I think still probably the best one. I just can't wait to be king is the one from The Lion King, which is that's a little bit different of an I Want song. You couldn't it doesn't have that much in common with uh, Part of Your World. Yeah, but as I was saying in that um, uh, Howard Ashman. Uh, lecture like he does such a i mean i'm not disagreeing with you that this does definitely bring that broadway convention into uh into disney but but it was so amazing how he connects it backwards as well you know like showing how these things kind of grew into becoming a convention that you could even get from broadway and he connects it back to um you know uh snow white's um what uh, I'm, I'm wishing I'm, I'm wishing I'm wishing yeah, yeah. I'm wishing and uh um, a dream I think is a wish said your heart makes yeah exactly so like we see what the prototypes for it in in those earlier movies as well which is I think part of what makes well it's part of what drew him to wanting to bring the musical back to animation was seeing that the history was there but it also I, I think it, it's it's part of why it worked so well you know like it there was a the the stage was set in a way for for this to work and then as you said like this is just the 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 extreme example of of, of an I want song. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that part of your world is better than I'm wishing and, and better <laughs> than uh, a dream is a wish your heart makes even like I, oh. I this is this is an all time yeah. classic. Yeah, so. absolutely. I absolutely agree with you. I just I, I like I like seeing how the history connects it through. But I yeah, I, I but you're right. It's, the... it's not like Broadway invents that. And then Disney is just kind of dragging behind. There is a there is a. a there is a precedent for it in the in the animated features as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think part of your world would have been my second choice for favorite. I remember listening to that song again over and over and thinking like like Jody Benson I wasn't thinking this as a kid, but like Jody Benson is what a princess sounds like. Uh-huh. Like they may look like a lot of different things, but like like I never, you know, cared much for Snow White's voice and, and Cinderella's voice is lovely and all the others, but I was like, this 
is a princess. Like, this is a princess voice, you know? You know, um, I would I would be remiss if I didn't tell Victoria's story, which is we, we went to Disney World once and we stayed in the Art of Animation Resort and the bathroom was had a uh had an Ariel's grotto uh shower curtain. <laughs> and so every morning as she took a shower to get ready to go to the park, she would sing Part of Your World, along with I'm sure every other human being in that motel. <laughs> That's fantastic. It's a good song to sing before you go into the parks, frankly. I mean, it, 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 yeah. because it, it kind of invokes all that. Oh, I hate to use the word magic, but that's the, that's probably the right word. Or like wonder and, and enchantment. Yeah. I mean, enchantment is a good one for it. Yeah. I do think there's interesting that it's in this grotto and it's this desire to enter a different world and, um, like, just really thinking about it in that sort of enchantment way, you know, like we, we kind of touched on this at the beginning of the show too, but like this idea that it's our world that's enchanted from her perspective, you know, and um, like that's part of what fantasy or fairy tales or whatever is, is drawing us to is, is uh, not, not an escape necessarily, um, but like, a, the, you know, an exiting of our world or a, or a removing of the veil to see the, the true thing. And I, just um you know over on the just the the core curriculum they're going through uh, Plato's Republic right now I thought I thought it was really interesting that she's desiring the real world while she's inside this cave so you just can't escape it can you no you can't and I yeah I yeah I I think it was it was that sort of thought though that actually turned this movie for me that helped me kind of see under that surface um junior knows best um kind of tale and the sort of rebellious teenager is actually right and wins you know because when i first watched it and with with that kind of vision on um it it came out as like wow this is really immoral <laughs> like you said michael mm. you know? But um, turning it and twisting it just that little bit to say, like, oh, she's actually, you know, she's looking for enchantment. Um, she's looking for something else um, to help turn it. And then the other thing that helps turn it, I think, is um, that uh, there is this setup, um, even in the amazing song of, you know, Kiss the Girl, that this is what love is, right? Love is kissing somebody um, within three days, and that shows true love, you know? But it actually, the movie itself subverts that, because then the true love actually shows up when her dad sacrifices himself for her, when Eric sacrifices himself, like, he's willing to, you know, to face the storm, to get onto the careening boat, you know, to to fight for her. Like, there's there's a real element of, like, this is, this is actually, like, um, more what true love is, you know, like, this is, this is the broader picture of love, which, which I think is, is nice. Yeah. Sorry, I got as far away from the song there. No, that's fine. I, I, w- I will say this movie is substantially less immoral than I remembered it being, so... It, it won me over fairly quickly. Like it, it's really such a step up from everything we've seen since. Gosh, I don't know the lady uh, Sleeping Beauty, certainly. Uh, that it, it's really hard to argue with this movie. Yeah. Can we talk about Prince Eric? You brought him up there a, a minute ago, and and the the kind of cultural consensus on Prince Eric is that he's boring, and and kind of personality free and i don't think that's fair at all 
Yeah, I disagree with that. What would you guys say instead? What would your uh, what's your apologetic for Eric? <laughs> well, you you go uh, ahead. Emily. Yeah, well, I, he he was always my favorite prince. Um, I thought he was very handsome, and but I also um, watching it again noticed a lot of the like little qualities that he had that that kind of built up to a personality. I mean, he doesn't get a ton of you know huge moments where you see him but um one of the small things that i really liked is when um is it beardsley is his um like companion um when he reveals the statue of him on the ship at the very beginning eric kind of makes a face like oh gosh that's so it's so gaudy and and it just kind of showed like his humility like i'm i'm not interested in the the riches or the wealth or the fame that comes with being royalty like i just kind of want to be a down-to-earth person and get married for love um and then there's some other ones where he does he you know resigns to because he's falling for ariel so he throws his flute into the water and and resigns to kind of give up on this mythical dream girl um in order for her who he is falling for and then of course Vanessa ruins all of that but um but I think a a huge part of why I thought he was always so heroic is is when at the end when he dives into the storm and says I lost her once I'm not going to lose her again Mm -hmm. and um it's just this very you know a dramatic or or big gesture of love that um that I think is it shows that like what he does he does wholeheartedly Uh um and I appreciate that in a man (laughs) he's he's an action hero you know he goes and rescues max from the burning ship yes i I mean what what prince would you say is better than him you you know until you get flynn rider in uh entangled or i mean prince philip in uh sleeping beauty is is probably on the level of him but none of the princes are super other than prince philip are are super um uh, dominant, yeah. I mean, they're 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 mostly there to be the object of fantasy, I think. But I, Prince Eric, uh, I I don't think that's true at all. So it annoys me when people say that. I think it's it's interesting because it, it's uh, I don't know. It's kind of a this there's this cultural thing about the Disney movies where we all watch them thousands of times, but then sometimes we came ar- away with. Um, still the entirely wrong message or like our memories of them like like we think of them in this you know in a very different way than what they what they actually are like i think we talked about this way back in cinderella too like kind of like the cultural understanding of cinderella and who she is you know like she's just this you know helpless you know waiting to be um you know, married to be saved type story is really not the story of cinderella at all if you watch it you know and the same thing here like you like I mean, Michael, you and I both fell for it. This sort of like it's an it's it's this is an immoral tale, or you know, Eric is Eric is a nobody. He's faceless. He's you know he's got nothing to him. But then like when you actually go back and watch it, there's 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 I don't know. There's so much more depth here, and I I think that's I don't know. That's really a an interesting thing, especially considering like kind of our our key question of how these movies shape our imaginations. The way that like sometimes we shape them in the wrong way, but it's not the fault of the movie. It's like like somehow we get the wrong <laughs> the wrong idea from it, you know. Mm-hmm. 
Well, we must. Uh, do we want to talk about a little any more about the songs? We kind of skipped through them, even though they're such a major part of this movie. Oh, sure. Was there an, is there another one you just have to talk about? Well, I, I don't. More I decided, unfortunate I make souls sure that we is, the, is the one. Oh we yeah, really yeah, on. yeah. We really have to talk about that one. It's I guess a, it's that a one great is... villain song, sung it's... to uh, to great effect by Pat Carroll as Ursula. Uh, did you know it was actually the first single from the Little Mermaid uh, uh, soundtrack album? Oh, I did not. Wow. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> yeah, I, th- that is crazy. But it, it makes some sense. Under like we, uh, I guess they they nearly cut the the big I want song, the part of your world. They didn't. They thought it was too boring and too slow. Oh man! And so they were. What a bad opinion. Like I. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. But I mean, I guess if you're if you're working under that sort of uh, um, idea, then maybe it makes sense. Although still, I'm I'm surprised it wasn't Under the Sea or or Kiss the Girl. Kiss under the, the Girl. Sea is the second like, single. Kiss the Girl yeah. wasn't a single, apparently. Wow. Yeah, I would have thought Kiss the Girl would have been the the lead single too, because that's one that you don't really know. You don't need to know anything about the movie to appreciate. Mm-hmm. In fact, my sister used that song at her wedding. Oh, yeah, I think it just fits very well. Like, I mean, it's just a, it's just a very romantic song. So, huh? Poor unfortunate souls. It is, it is an incredibly catchy song. I mean, that's just. It is, and and <laughs> like almost convincing. Like yeah. by the end, you're like, yeah, she she's really helping these people. Like she's really, you know, I just, I remember Mm -hmm. thinking that as a kid, like, man, maybe, maybe she's not so bad. Like she's just doing, she's just using her magic that she's picked up over the years to help people that need help. And Mm -hmm. maybe that's okay. She, it's a, it's a great performance. Yeah. On the whole, she has been a saint. (laughs) True. To me, that's the most Broadway of the songs in the movie. I don't know that I can defend that position, but that's just my that's just my uh reading of it. It feels yeah. very theatrical compared to the other songs. Well, I think part of that, Michael, might be the and again I'm taking this I'm taking all of this from the same like little fifteen minute featurette that I watched of that mm-hmm. Howard Howard lecture, but um he, he talked about in there about like the justification for a song and this and he said this this song is the song in the movie where there's not really a justification for it being there like within the movie right like the sailors are singing that's what sailors do there's a musical performance that's kind of like a a pastiche or whatever of you know uh um choral or um chamber music you know like that that makes sense you know but like this song there's there's really no reason for ursula to be singing here um but uh but and but so much of the movie hinges on it you know and so i i do think that's that's maybe part of what gives it that theatricalness Mm -hmm. is um the um it's not it's not really justified any other way well and so much of it is speaking or yeah. singing that's very close to speaking, and there's a yeah. ter- there's a term for that in theater, and I can't remember what it is. It's not recitative, but whatever. Well, the only other thing I I, I mean I'm not trying to drive 
for the conversation if you guys had other things you wanted to talk about. But I did want to mention that on this last viewing, like I, they do some really interesting things with light in this movie. And I don't know that I have anything to say um, about it other than if you haven't watched the movie in a while, when you watch it, you should pay attention. Like it's, it's really, I think it's, it's the most amazing use of, of color and, and light that we've seen in, in a very long time and maybe ever um, like there's lightning flashes. There's times mm-hmm. when characters are half in shadow and half out mm-hmm. the, the song we were just talk- talking about the poor, unfortunate souls. There's this eerie light coming from the cauldron and it, it reflects off the characters in really interesting ways all the time that they're underwater. There's always like interesting um, uh, light things happening when, you know, Ariel's swimming through the sh- shipwrecks and, and I just, it's all over the place that there's, there's very interesting contrast between lights and darks. And I, I think it's, it's really wonderful. Um, uh, we haven't talked much about the, there's the, the beauty of the movie, uh, the way it looks, but there, there's a lot of beauty just in the way that they play with light in this movie. The animation in general is just um, a, a step above everything else we've seen for a very long time. Yeah. The other thing that I learned in watching the featurettes was, um, you know, last, last with Oliver and company, I was talking about how disgusting the humans looked and how they just didn't look right. Uh, if anybody remembers that, but um, <laughs> like, yeah. I really, it really bothered me how the humans looked in Oliver and company. And uh, the, for the most part, everybody looks great in this movie. And what's interesting is that they went back to um, a um, using video reference for this movie, which they hadn't done in, uh, in such a long time that nobody at the studio actually knew how to do it anymore. Um, they actually brought in the little girl who's now a, a, a full grown woman, you know, like, um, who had, who had done the, the video reference for as Alice and they brought oh. her in to ask her, like, how do we do this? What do you remember from it? Because she was the only one that they could, I, I guess, who was accessible, who who had been through it when Disney had done it in the past. And so they actually did do video referencing for this movie in order to make um, the characters move in a, in a realistic way. Um, and so that was, I think that's a huge part about why this movie looks so good compared to um, Oliver and company in particular. Interesting. I didn't know that. That's Yeah, yeah. that's very cool. Well, was there anything else you guys wanted to throw in there? I think that was that was the end of my sort of things I wanted to hit for this movie. Um, I feel like yeah, I've, I I kind of covered the the necessities for me. Yeah, I'm with you. All right. Well, this was a lot of fun. Thank you, guys. And uh, I, I really like this movie, and it was, it was a lot of fun to talk it through and to get get some of um, the ideas out there. I really. Um, I really like what you brought, Emily, with the uh, um, the idea of Ariel just needing a, a good, fee- strong female mentor. <laughs> yeah, anyone. Made, it kind of kind yeah. of cracked the movie open for me. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. yeah. So thank you so much. I, I'm really glad you came to join us. Yeah, of course. Happy to. <laughs> yeah. Well, our press liaison is Kristen Philippic, and we are on the old interwebs at christianhumanist.org. You can help us continue this conversation by reaching out to us on Twitter. I'm at the underscore alt, and Michael is at Kel Bummer. 
And we also want to encourage you to set your podcast player's dials to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, where you'll find an abundance of new and old shows to keep you going. And if you're interested in uh, Plato, what we mentioned there uh, for a little while, uh, that's going on right now on uh, Core Curriculum. And so for Michael Farmer, I'm Josh Altman Schofer. And oh, sorry, for Michael Farmer and Emily. Uh, sorry, Emily. Emily's surname. It's okay. <laughs> Rogers. <laughs> Rogers. Or Becker. Both. <laughs> or Becker. Emily Becker, Rogers, whatever it is. Uh, I'm Josh Altman Schofer. I just want to gratefully say we know there are a great number of podcasts out there you could be spending your time on. So thank you for spending them, the time with us. So long, lover boy. <laughs>